BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's good, y'all? This is Breeze Bruin from the Mighty Juggernauts. And make sure you subscribe and download the podcast. Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Kell. Hip-hop journalism on the highest level. Yeah, what's up? It's your boy, Joel Ortiz. And I want everybody to make sure that they subscribe and download the podcast, Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Ininko. Yo, Tim, I hope all is well. You my guy. I know these interviews are not interviews. They're actually conversations, and I appreciate them all. Yeah, well. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ice-T. I want you to do something for me. Make sure you download and subscribe Library Rap. The hip hop interviews with Tim I and Cal. It is old fucking official. All right, stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library rap. The hip hop interviews with Tim I and Cal. It's cold. Names associated with my next guest are Sessa Sonic, De La Soul, Grave Diggers, Brooke Zill. Their base, the producers, the DJs, they are hip hop. They have a 40 year plus friendship, which is incredible. Their newest project is called By Any By Every Means Necessary, Volume One, which is the original score of the Netflix documentary Who Killed Malcolm X. It is out now by the Lord Brothers, aka Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Prince Paul and Don Newkirk, welcome to the library of Tim Anikel on allhiphop.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. What is up? Oh, thanks. Thanks for having us. So there's an appreciation that you guys have this friendship that are 40 plus years. I have three good friends that I've known since kindergarten, so 30 something years as well. Um, <laughs> you, I was reading an interview and you talk about being in Don's basement in ninth grade on his turntables, listening to music. Yeah. Listening to uh, at this time. And what made you kind of fall in love with this culture? Um, strictly breakbeats. That's all we was doing. We we're going back and forth, breakbeats. Newkirk's favorite breakbeat, and correct me if I'm wrong, Newkirk was is pussy. Oh, you're yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, and and that's and that and that was it, man. Catching from the top. Ching ching ding Yeah, he, he was nice. Uh, Don, what was your in 1982? I'm assuming that was around that time. Uh, what was going on? in music for you uh, that kind of made you get those turntables, made you get those records? Um, well, I had, um, came up in the Bronx. So I was right there like when um, Bambata and uh, Jazzy J and all them dudes would be in the park. Mm-hmm. So I had like, you know, a bird's eye view of hip hop coming up. So what made me go out and buy those records and turntables was being in the park and hearing the breaks. 
you know, along with Spoolie G and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, you, I, of course, Paul. I would have to. I, could, I couldn't let you go without asking you about uh, three feet high and rising. And you know, you obviously read about it, and everyone talks about how groundbreaking it was in terms of production and how you essentially threw out the rule book. Um, in terms of what it is to produce a hip hop album, take us back to 1989 when you were producing this album. What were the quote unquote rules of hip hop that were quote unquote supposed to be followed, and what kind of made you throw them out the window? I think uh, the rules of hip hop was, I mean, if there were rules, I mean, you got to stand like hip hop birthed itself out of not having rules. But I guess at the point of record production and hip hop production, it was definitely at a high time where James Brown was in. It's not like we didn't use James Brown. We just didn't use him like everybody else did. And our thing was good music is good music. You know, so we sampled from everywhere and anywhere. Um, so it, it wasn't, you know, confined to just funky break beats or just funk or just, you know, little jazz clips and stuff. We were going, or, or soul for that matter. We, we were just going wherever the good music was because, and Newkirk could attest to this, when we grew up, our uh, our radio was just really diverse, right? You know, they they played everything. Oh, definitely. You know, yeah. it was disco, soul, rock, blue-eyed soul. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, anything from disco duck to Patti LaBelle to Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, and you could go all the way down to Hall & Oates. So it, it was diverse. So that's kind of what we used, um, putting a lot of those samples and, and songs together was just pulling from what we grew up on and you know and and all our backgrounds in the group was, was different too so you know we pulled from wherever our family kind of brought their records from you know uh, don i wanted i do want to ask you about funk city but actually prior to that i want to ask you about the importance of uh having a diverse um i guess the diverse music selection uh you know you grew up at a time and myself grew up at a time where hip hop obviously wasn't the number one genre of music. Uh, now you have kids and even before a generation before listening to hip hop as their kind of, that, that's their influence. That's their, that's what they go to. What's, do you think the importance of having this diverse record selection or music selection? And do you think kind of hip hop's lost itself by not picking from these other genres and just kind of picking from itself? Um, well, dealing with a diverse selection, we like Paul was saying, our radio stations, I remember we came up with um, WKTU, I think it was. Wow, Disco 92. Radio station. Yeah. Disco 92. And they played everything, man. I mean, everything from Barry White to the Bee Gees. Mm. You know what I mean? So if there was anything that was funky within those records, we were able to grab hold of it all in one place. Also, our homes were like that. Like, I know my home was like that. My mom played, you know, Calypso music, and my brother was into Elvis Presley, and I was into the Jacksons. So we had this array of music coming up. So I think that that was the, the template and, and, and the palette that the early hip-hop dudes, we were all pulling from, you know what I mean? That's what made hip-hop hip-hop. Nowadays... I think now, today, in 2020, some of the young kids are going back to that concept. Not so much where they're pulling from very old records like we were, but they are pulling from records from a vast majority of genres now. Like, you'll hear samples coming from pop, 
and you'll hear samples still coming from rock music. So the essence of it is there. It's just different music that they're pulling from now. Don, your album, Funk City, was released the same year in 1989 as uh, Three Feet High and Rising. And and we also were introduced to you, or we introduced you on, on the on the track, on, on some of Three Feet High and Rising. What were your plans with Funk City? Kind of take us back to your beginnings of your, you know, your music career. What do you want to do? Oof. The plan with Funk City was, I don't know if there was a plan. It was just trying to, uh, I, I was digging into like a whole new creative space musically. It, it, it had all been hip hop up until maybe a year or two before Funk City. And then I got introduced to this little short purple dude named Prince. Oh, that guy. And that like kind of like changed the trajectory of where I was going musically. Not where I was going, it just introduced me to a whole new concept. Because I was already making music. The influence was a little different. It was probably a little bit more babyface or the system influenced. Um, I actually got some of those demos back that I had from back then that didn't make Funk City. And as hard as it is to even listen to it, I think I'm going to release it. Because <laughs> I should, because there's a lot of stuff that just, you know, happened before Funk City. But um, yeah, Funk City was like in, in, in a mode of like me experimenting, learning instrumentation and learning how to use my voice in a different way other than just rapping. Because I was never a singer. I was always an MC. Mm -hmm. um, but I just felt like I could express what I was trying to say better with melody back then. So um, it came out more so as Funk City, which I think is dope because, you know, it gave people a whole different element of me and just that whole time of like what was going on in our crew. Um, I might, maybe I would have had more success if I'd have stuck to emceeing being the three feet high and rising. It came out and, you know, gas face it was about to come out. And then I was in that whole camp, you know pretty much in a native tongue camp, but not really a native tongue more so because I was singing than spitting. Right. But um, I'm glad that it, it did go down the way it went down because it created this legacy that I'm only now realizing, you know, has made an effect that I didn't even know from back then because we didn't have internet. Um, you know, Don, you, you played keys on Stets, uh, talking about that jazz. You know, you were yeah. um, high and rising, gas face. Um, obviously, Prince Paul was there as well. Uh, I, for both of you, what, what was the bigger picture doing all these, well, quote unquote, little things uh, to make sure you, like each of you were kind of on a project with each other? What was the bigger picture for you in terms of your both your careers? Yeah, you uh, can start, Paul. I know what I'm going to say, but you can start. I don't even know if it was like a a plan. I think I think for me it's like you're my boy, you're talented. If I'm if I'm on, you're on. And so wherever I could fit you in and in, in, in any project, I'm gonna put you on. Even, you know, to however long we've been making <laughs> records. If I find something where I can get new Kirk on it, or you know, there's a budget or if there's something I think he might be interested in, I'm gonna get him on any way possible. Cause that's uh it's a certain loyalty, you know, to your friends and it's, it's how you do, you know, to your real good friends. That is, you know? Right. Because <laughs> everybody in the neighborhood will claim they're your friend and they go, I heard what you said, you hook me up. You know, it's, he's in a class of his own, you know. 
That was definitely what I was going to say. It was for us. It wasn't so systematically thought out as, oh, I can get on your project and then I'll save a spot. I think people do that more, more so nowadays. Is that you know you you can I need you to feature on this thing and, but yeah we we just more so, for us it was just camaraderie of hanging out, being in the studio, being boys, and like you know, we would have. It wouldn't have made a difference. It never made a difference if it was industry, record company related or not. It was just like, yo, I'm in the studio with so-and-so today. You know, you come by? Yeah, I'll come by. And like, you know, or we're talking all that jazz. It was like, you know, oh, yo, Delight. We, You know, I think it was like the sample couldn't be cleared or whatever. And it was like, yo, you want to come in and play some keys on this, this play these keys over or whatever? It was, it was never like you know, a big deal. Like, it was just, yes, honey, I'm over here. My cat just came in and interrupted the whole interview. But um, yeah, I think that, I think I answered the question. It was just us hanging out. Mainly. Let me, let me get the cat out for a minute. Cat man. <laughs> My cat's a very vocal. Yeah, I think, I think how we went about music back then yeah, was way different. Where I think now people really want, you know, man. it's like, in order for it to be my record, you got to talk to my people. Let's get the sword out and let's get da da da. I was just like, hey, you're in the studio. Hey, why don't you get on the mic? And then we figure out what particulars later. It's whatever made the song better at the given time or wherever your creative mind was. I mean, it's even, I'll give you a good example of just how things were haphazardly recorded. Um, the beginning of Buddy, that uh, meeny, 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 say what? Meeny, meeny. Yeah. That was Dave and Q Tip sitting in the, uh, in the control room, and as the beat was playing, it was they was just they was going back and forth doing. It. I was like, "Yo, let's record that. Let's record it." You know, what I'm saying so. That's how things were back then. It it was never you get on the track, you get whatever. It's like whatever sounds good at the time, or who's ever there at the time, or whoever contributes at the time. Uh, so it was never for like a uh, you know an intentional gain, which I think now you have people going and kind of you know seeing the landscapes like, "Yo, how many followers you got?" Right, right, right. I got X amount of followers. Let's maybe we could, you know, get our people to follow each other, and then you know, it's it's never like that. It's pretty innocent. I wish I thought like that back then. I might have made more money if I strategically <laughs> just, you know, oh, I wonder what Hammer's doing. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't think like that. Yeah, I don't know if the music would have been as good if if we if we worked that way though. I think that's what made the music so good. Is it? You know, I mean, we just were vibing. It was literally a vibe. And 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 the fact that you guys were able to, you know, you were at a time where you actually had to go into the studio to, uh, oh yeah, do yeah. art versus like emailing and pay for it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, time was precious. <laughs> Paul, when you first heard um, Deva's demo, what kind of made you interested in collaborating with them? Like, what kind of drew you to producing them? Well, initially I met Maceo, you know, and he was, if you've met him before, he's like a fun-loving, nice guy, you know, not to his foes, <laughs> he's not a fun-loving, nice guy, but if you meet him in general on good terms, he's a, a really good guy, and that made me, that was the initial, like, draw, and then hearing the demo, which was just like something I've never heard before, it's just the approach, the rhyme style, you know, the, the the sample that they decided to use, I was like, yo, this is, this is I've never heard this. And, and this is kind of how I was thinking back then. I was thinking way out the box. So it was more or less 
I would say like heaven sent. Like we worked well with each other from the gate because the things that I brought to the group and what they had already, uh, it couldn't be a perfect match. I don't think there's any other producer or there's any other group at the time that we could have worked with that would have had the same amount of success. We fed off each other a lot. So it, it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was amazing. If you, if, if you would have heard it in 1986 or 87, whenever they played me the demo, you would have freaked out too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, I actually want to ask you about, you, you know, you, you obviously you read up on three feet high and rising, you read up on all your work and the most common, you know, sentence is it's ahead of its time. Right. And then you kind of read up of how you dealt with things in studio, like embracing mistakes and stuff like that. But then you also read about you trying to work with uh, or produce more with the uh, stethosonic and, and I think the the quote was that they saw it as quote unquote juvenile. Uh, <laughs> what was juvenile about your your approach to producing or even the sound that today we're like holy shit that was ahead of its time? Because I you know the things I drew from you know I was you know Dukirk will attest to this because we're both the same way we're still this way we're just silly you know I'm, I'm a kid you you have to keep in mind like when I joined Stetsonic I was going from tenth grade to eleventh grade these men were married with kids you know what I'm saying they were they were grown men I was a child so you know my the things I drew from were just like yo man uh Saturday morning cartoons and oh that that's crazy and I mean in addition to like having the the radio stuff that me and Newkirk talked about and what our family listened to and obviously DJing and the break beats we were well versed in that but you know I'm still silly. I, you know, I'm still I've been 18 since I was 18. I'm still 18 in my head. You know what I'm saying? And I I think I act the same way for the most part, and it manifests in the music. And, you know, bringing stuff like that to Stet, uh, it wouldn't have fit. You know, I think back in the days when I first approached them with certain things, uh, it hurt my feelings because I was a kid and I didn't understand. But now as an adult, I look back and it wouldn't have worked for them. It would have just been stupid. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's like having Rakim doing a nursery rhyme, you know, it's like, <laughs> it, you know, it just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have blended, you know? Um, I, I want to ask you about this new project, but also prior to you, I have to ask you about, uh, uh, one of my favorite things you've ever done was uh Prince of Monk Thieves. Oh, um, wow. Looking back, you know, you, I know you pitched it in the early nineties and I think it was kind of rejected at first, but then, you know, it took a while to get out. Were you, were you happy with from what you envisioned it to, to the final product? Were you happy with how the final product came out? Man, that's funny because I don't even remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, because it's never been done before, and I had it in my head a certain way. I mean, technically, as I listen back, I I would I wish I could did a lot better as far as just like uh, the soundscaping and the 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 effects and everything. But what I had to use at the time, because I didn't wasn't using Pro Tools, I was using sequencers and samplers, mm. and and that was it. And so it wasn't looking at a screen and stretching stuff and moving things. It was listening, listening. Sound goes here. That's wrong. Erase that. Sound again. Move the bar in the sequencer. Da, da, da. It, it took a lot of work. So yeah, I mean, I was I was pretty happy with myself. Until I played it for Tommy Boy at that at that uh, at that first meeting of uh, with the A and R and everybody, and I played it for them. And at the end of the meeting, they went, 
<laughs> they just stood there. They didn't know what to say. Well, uh, it's different. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, you feel so deflated. So imagine you putting in hours. I've seen the sun come up. I've heard the birds chirping from the time I ate dinner all at night, like working hard on this, like writing it out. And then, you know, you played like, ah, my masterpiece. And, you know, they and you're like, oh, they're just going to bug them out. And they're just like. And then they sit on it for a solid year, you know, from 98. I had it in February 98. It came out February 99. So, you know, that's the life of Paul. There's, there's a price to pay for being or for trying to go out the box. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's revered in some ways, but it, it, it'll, it'll hurt your feelings, you know, if you're a sensitive artist, which most artists are. Almost, was, there a chance, yeah. was, was there a chance that it would have been shelved completely or... I mean, yeah, there's always the, the possibility. I mean, you know, hey, my whole Duda Man record label was shelved. So any any anything goes at this point, you know. It's uh and I got kinda got used to that. I was hoping, but in my head I was like, it was the best thing ever. Same thing with grave diggers. And I did grave diggers and I did the demo. I was like, Oh, it's the best demo. Oh my God, it's gonna blow people's mind and I shopped that thing for over a year. Nobody had, had nothing to do with it. Except Easy E, which I always forget. He was interested in it. And uh, G Street at the end, who signed it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not all pretty, you know. <laughs> uh, Dom, you once said in an interview, the nation, the nation, the nature of music is communal. Um, I want to. Can you talk about how the recording process has changed for you both, or you know, in terms of as the advancement of technology, but also what has that kind of one thing that you both ensured stays the same while you guys create. As I stated as an example, or cited as an example earlier, with Dela being in the control room and doing meeny meeny, say what? Sure. That would have never happened if I said, "Hey, man, I sent you the beat." <laughs> you know, say they would have did a rhyme. I would send it back. You know, you know, listen to it. Everything is uh, is having somebody to hear something that you might not have heard yourself. You know what I'm saying? And and to push you to do it. And that's what's good with me and Newkirk working together. Like, you know, he'll play something. He'll just kind of gloss over it. I'm like, yo, what's this crazy? Go back. He's like, you like this? I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. And it turns out to be the illest thing ever that he would just kind of gloss over. And sometimes you need that. You need somebody to tell you something's dope or something's whack or something or how you can improve upon something and vice versa. Go, you know, and you just make yourself better. And Newkirk's right. When you're sitting in a room by yourself, it's it's. You can get some things done, but at some point it needs to go to, you know, to the next person, you know, to the inspector. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Turning to your, your latest project, uh, Needle to the Groove Presents by Every Means Necessary, Volume 1. Um, can you just talk about the creation process here? I mean, how much of you guys were in studio together uh, as you could be? Um, and and what kind of prompted this 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 pad, this project? You want me to answer that, new Perky? You want to answer? Oh, you want me? To, you well, well, you know, initially uh, we got asked to do uh, to score the documentary, and 
that that would re- that's what really prompted it. And then to have to be in a competition with other composers to see if you're going to get the project, you know what I'm saying? And Luke, I could tell you, man, like I, I'm not one to go out and be cocky in public and like, yo, I'm the best and channel my inner Kanye and, you know, tell everybody how dope I am. But, you know, putting in a competition, I was like, yo, Luke, we're going to have to wax these people and show them how nice we are. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, because like this is dope for us. I mean, you know, as, as I've stated before, like we, we were born right off of the civil rights movement. So we know the vibe, we know the feeling, we know the music, we know the, the sound of the era, you know, you know, we're a product of, of Malcolm X's, you know, work and his struggle. So who's better to do it than us? So I think that really worked in for the sound of it. And then for us to actually get together, and I think your question was uh, how often is, uh, you know, as Newkirk said, or as he showed you, you know, he's in the studio, I'm in my studio. We swap things, and then next thing you know, I'm at his spot for like a week. And we're just sitting in there just going over music, going over music. I go back home, I'm back at, at his spot for a week, going over music, you know, getting things together. So, yeah, it was it was back and forth. You know, technology gives us the, the ability to work on our own and to, to exchange stuff, in, you know, in the privacy of our homes. But there's nothing like getting together and really getting things done and vibing out. That's when the best music came out, I think, during the, during the score, the initial score, and then eventually putting uh, the music together for the, uh, for the LP. Um- when you talk to producers or DJs and, and you know, talk about scoring a piece or producing a piece, they always kind of talk about the, you know, the voice of the artist and they, and, and obviously really great producers use the voice of the artist as that extra instrument. Uh, when you guys were scoring this, how much of this did you re-listen to Malcolm X to listen to him talk and how much of his voice was considered when putting certain sounds together or putting instruments together? All of it. Yeah, um, that was a big deal for us. Was like making sure we captured Malcolm's essence, like the essence of what he was trying to get across at that time, and and to try to get the essence of what he was feeling mm-hmm. also across, because that was a big deal, because it covered that last few you know weeks of his life when things got really super hectic, when he was getting all these death threats, worried about, you know, the future of his family and where they, how they would be taken care of. And because, you know, he, for the most part, you can see that he pretty much knew that he wouldn't be here much longer. So it was really trying to step inside of what does a man, a young man at that feel like knowing that your time is not only limited, but you have a family that's going to go on. It has to go on without you. You have children. So that was the main thing for us is when we were trying to um, create, we were trying to create his musical voice, like the emotional musical voice, the internal musical voice that he might've had and capture it in the essence of the time period that he was in is what we were trying to do as well and make all of it thematic. So there was a theme that weaved all the way through the project, if all of that makes sense. <laughs> yes, yeah, perfect. Um, she's a, uh, Gwen Tompkins, she's the host of uh, Music Inside Out uh, WWNO in New Orleans, and she had this. She wrote this in 2015 about uh, Malcolm X with a mix of so 
deprecating humor, straight talk, and withering criticism of, well, everyone. Malcolm X conveys that public speech should not be attempted until the speaker has something to say. So the question to both of you, what are your favorite aspects about uh, Malcolm X's voice, about his speech writing? Well, oh, I think uh, for me, it's, it, and, and it's indicative of my own personality, is relating to people with not just being intelligent and hitting you with, uh, with how it is, is the sarcasm. <laughs> which he spoke you know he, he, you know he'll say things and he like you know and he'll poke at people and i thought that was really really smart without actually revealing them so you had to see both sides of the coin or understand the issues when listening to him to go okay he's talking about the police okay he's talking about the president okay he's talking about and uh and you know times when he did that and times when he was pretty blunt too you know uh I can appreciate that. I can appreciate straight no chaser. And, mm. you know, whether it be within the sarcasm, whether it be straight up in day-to-day conversation, I wish people would be more like him in the sense of, you know, just tell me, don't tell me what you want me to hear. Tell me like it is. And and give me the facts to back it up and the intelligence. And maybe, you know, I could see eye to eye. I could, you know, hear what you're saying or I could understand or maybe, you know, I could feel what you're feeling. As opposed to, you know, I'm saying this and just listen to me regardless because that's the way it is. I like the fact that he can just go and back it up, back up the thoughts. And it's not just it's because of this, it's because of that. It's like, let me cite by example. Then let me throw a little bit of humor and sarcasm in it, too. And I'm like, wow, okay, he's got me. He's got me. Don? Yeah, I mean, that would make make Malcolm so charismatic, right? It was like, you know... He was the great orator. Like, I think another thing for me that always caught and captured me was his his mastery over vocabulary. Like, you know, he might throw a word out, and I'm running to the dictionary. Like, what is that? Oh, that's what that word means. So his his mastery over the English language also is what I think allowed him to be so. Uh, when he was being direct, he was able to to use words in a way to cut really deep, you know what I mean? Or, or to get his point across in a very distinct way because he had the mastery that he had over vocabulary. So, you know, as, as Malcolm would have been the illest MC hip hop would have ever known <laughs> if he came at that time. You know what I mean? Because Malcolm is just, his mastery of words and the way he put words together, I don't think there would be too many others like him if he was an MC, definitely. Uh, I was listening to the track uh, Mother's Fruit and a quote that stood out was, if we if we can all get together as one and move as a unit as opposed to independently, we can do what needs to be done. Uh, so the question for you is, how much of this album for you is a call to action uh, or what should we actually want to take away from this? Independent from the movie or from the Netflix special, how much of this, what do you want us to take away from this album? Oh, Paul, you want me to take that? Oh, yeah. Um, um, you, you knew Kirk, man. It was interesting, um, that quote specifically that you bring up. You know, we when we made the album, obviously there would, there would be a thread of Malcolm all the way through it. But um, we didn't use Malcolm, his voice or his speeches or anything like that. Right. So we had to try to encapsulate 
that same vibe um, without using his speeches and all. Um, and what we found interesting is that, I know I did at least, is that everything, all of the speeches that are on the album and all of the sentiment that's on the album is just as relevant today as it would have been, you know, when Malcolm was here, which is pretty sad to a degree um, that the we're in this somewhat in the same, we've come so far, but we're somewhat in the same predicament. And it's not just a race thing, like black and white. It's kind of like we can see it now with all that's going on. All of us are in a predicament. And all of us need to unite and find a common thread to get out of this current mess that we're in. And although we made the album before uh, this current situation, this quarantine or whatever you want to call it, pandemic situation is going on, you know, I just think that the sentiment of what Malcolm, uh, what his message was, still rings true, obviously, all the way through to today, especially now in the time that we're in. And we had no idea that this was coming. So, you know, I don't want anybody to say, you know, oh, they're down the Illuminati. They must have known there was going to be a lyrics on the album. We had no idea. It just happened to work out that way because, you know, unfortunately, there's a common thread that still exists that we do all need to come together. We do all need to find our common purpose and rid ourselves of the, the, the ties, the, the, the unfit ties that bind us, like the garbage ties and find the, the worthy ties that bind us so we can get through any situation that may be laid out. Amen. Um, I was reading, I saw, I was, I was reading an interview you guys did about uh, the Brooksdale's uh, throwback to the future album. And you both talked about um, kind of pe- uh, stripping back the record to the essence of drum and the beat. And then Don, you also talked about the importance of uh, P-Funk being a kind of early influence. So, on this on this album, if you were just to take it just from a musical standpoint, what would you say is the the ode? Like, what is this? Who? What? What musical or mu- music genre or genres is what you say this would be an ode to? I, I think for me, uh, melodic '70s soul. You know, just uh, and on the onset of this, I remember talking to Kirk. I was like, "Yo." When we're going to score this, it's not just going to be score like everybody else does. We're going to we're going to move these scenes with melody, and I think that's what makes what separates this from any documentary I've ever seen. Is we made this obviously indicative of the time. We made it funky, but it it was heavy on melody. And thinking back of you know composers, you know uh, who scored movies, who were you know obviously soul musicians at first. We were definitely thinking of uh, people like Marvin Gaye. Um, we were thinking of uh, uh, Curtis Mayfield, you know, because all you know, come on, you, you can't get more melodic and funky than that. And it makes stuff makes the scene and it makes everything memorable as well as impactful. And so, I was trying to find and tie the two together. To, I mean, together. So uh, th- that's for me where we were trying to go to or wanting to go to. And I think we did it. We, we were pretty successful at it. Ditto. The last track on the album, A Straight Man, uh, it's, it's just incredible to hear and uh, to go out with. 
and it's something you're listening to it and you know something's about to happen because it's building up to something but then it's the last track on the album and there's nothing after that so i'm like what the fuck uh, uh, so why leave us with this last track on the album where you're like you're ready to do something and then nothing Hey, we're leaving it up to you, the listener. You know what I mean? Because that that last track is straight straight man in a crooked game, and um, it is a hell of a build up. But that build up is like almost for like it's almost like the Warriors are all getting dressed in their houses, and we're getting ready to go outside and get it done. So that's what it is. You got to take it upon us. We all got to take it upon ourselves now to keep that song going. You know, because um, plus it just worked perfectly in the uh, lineup of, of the other songs. Well, also. Well, well, you know, you know what, it, you know what it is too. In addition to what Newkirk said, is that uh, you ever watch a movie and then it goes, uh, "How about the Marvel movie with the Avengers?" And you go, yeah. "It's everybody kind of just dissipating." You go, "What happens next?" <laughs> you you got to go to part two. So obviously we're planning on a part two to this at some point. So, you know, it, it, we're leaving you with uh, the, the bodies uh, kind of disintegrating. <laughs> part two should be the resolve, <laughs> but a better one than the Marvel movie. You know, I, I was a little disappointed, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I got two more questions for you guys. Uh, Firstly, what is both of you, what is your favorite, absolute favorite part of of producing any project? Just kind of doesn't have to be a you know specific project, just any project that you work on. Paul? Oh, you want me to go first? Mm. I think uh I think for me is is um taking an artist to a place where they thought they couldn't go. You know what I'm saying? Is is the power of like of them going, that's me, or yo, that's dope, or you know, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to come out like that. Like, you know, it, it's it's that part of it. I think it's it's more of the giving part than it is of the accolades or anything. Or like, oh, man, this is great. It's what you give to the person that you're working with. And then ultimately, the people who listen to the music. I know it sounds cheesy. It sounds whatever. But that's what's always been the drive for me. You know, if, if the, the, the money always came later. But, you know, the initial part has always been like... <laughs> Is, is, you know, it's the people, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, what do you want to give back? You know what I'm saying? Like the, the immediate of who you're working with. And that's part of being a DJ too, right? When you DJ, boo, kill a DJ. You know if you're doing good or bad right then and there. So the first person that you deal with is the artist and then the public at large and getting that feedback. Uh, to me, that that's always been the beauty of it. Uh, and uh, like I said, maybe if I would have hired Hammer and did all stuff in the early days and thought out, I would have made more money, you know, and I would have problems with my computer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but then again, Teddy Riley did too, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> he has way more money than me. <laughs> All right, Don, go ahead. Uh, Paul, said, Paul said definitely that. Um, and And I would say overall just the magic moments there are there are moments in producing music whether you're alone but especially when you're with other people that there are magic moments and i mean like i i had a band uh named blackout um 
and we it was a jam band and we used to just get together and just jam and we have these recordings that you know we're talking and the talks are maybe releasing but whatever but the the, the magic moment is like when you're in the midst of this jam session and nobody knows where they're going we're all in the same key um and it's almost like there's a little angel bird that just flies through the room and it permeates every musician in the room or every artist in the room and something happens and at that moment magic happens and you, and it's caught on tape and you go whoa what was that you know what i mean it's kind of like what paul was talking about with meaning 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 that's a magic moment you know what i mean that's something that just happens when the essence of people are in unison together and the producer's part of it is to be able to hear that capture that you know you'll hear it with all types of producers scott stewart said he was just messing around on the keys going plum 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 and dre looked into the room and said that right there that right there so you know what i mean so those magic moments a producer is like the person you know who's there to almost uh with kind of like with his little magic wand he just wields all the energy together and puts it all together in one like little pot stirs it up and then boom you added a culture and you got this amazing piece of work and it's beautiful so yeah i think that's the main thing for me uh, Paul, you once said and this is my last question for both of you but you once said about uh three feet high and rising that it was quote just an album of total sincerity we went in there to have fun and experiment uh don and paul looking back at your careers uh how, how how have you been able to create albums or music just based on total sincerity? And has there ever been moments, maybe because of the business of of, of the industry, that you kind of couldn't do that album all at, at total sincerity and had to like quote unquote do like a SWV moment where you had to make a major crappy album? <laughs> well, I, I know I know for me, uh, I've always stuck by that for the most part. You know, I mean, there's times you're always going to get influenced by stuff, right? You're going to hear something like, oh, man, everybody's using 808s. Let me try that. Let me implement that. Let me do this. But as you can tell just by my uh, by my catalog, it's I've done a little bit of everything. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's always been influenced by um, whatever I'm feeling at the time. Look, I've done a children's record. I've done a comedy record. I did Three Feet High Rise and Handsome Boy set to sonic and those all, all vary and i'm not talking about even the other things that i've done even the, the score that we've done recently and it's it's never by uh you know by like okay uh, i'm about i'm about to money chase it's always like okay this is what i'm feeling at the time and let me let me also let me let me challenge myself a lot of producers get into their little you know pocket and they want to stay there I, you know, and everything kind of, they bring their sound to everybody and it all sounds the same. Me, I like to, I like to push the limits, man. It's, uh, you know, you never know where you can go in, until you try. And, and I, and it's scary because you, you're, you're out there for ridicule. So every time I've done something, it's like, you know, I think it's dope, but let's see what the people say. The people say, and you like this, <laughs> and you like, and you, you know, you see what happens and that's, that's beauty, you know, doing the same thing over and over again. It's kind of easy, but to kind of put yourself out there, 
it, 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 it's, it's, I don't know. It, it's scary. So that's that's why. And I hate to bring money up a lot during this. That's why I had to, I had to save my money throughout my whole career because I never knew if I was ever going to come back. Like ever, I never had the comfortability of going. Yeah, man, I got another record or two, or I got a deal, or you know, it's. I never know. Like it, it, I'm putting myself out there every time, and uh, and it, it's been fun. And and like I said, you know, my catalog speaks for itself. I, I and I'm not saying this out of bragging, but I really don't know any other hip hop producer who has the diversity of the music that I've done at all. Like I can't think of anybody. You know what I'm saying? Um, so you know, and I'm still here. Thank God. Thank you. <laughs> The way I've always been able to be sincere, and this is not even funny, but I've always kept the music to myself and didn't release. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's really true, though. Like, Paul had to be the one to come twist my arm to go get the Def Jam deal. I was stuck in a basement making music without any concern about anyone hearing it. You know, it was just for my ears only, not even my family members. My brother used to sneak into the basement and put my four-track tapes on to listen to what I was working on because I wouldn't share it because it was so personal. You know, like Erica says, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Cancerian, so I'm super sensitive and I have a shell. So I would just use music to just duck my head in my shell and just live this musical life of my own in my shell. So it's always been sincere. I think the only time that sincerity is challenged is when you're dealing with stepping out of the shell and releasing it to the world and sharing it. Then, you know, it's personal criticism and it's outside criticism. And then if you're dealing with the money, with labels and stuff like that, it becomes the ultimate criticism of like, no, 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 you got to make music like Teddy Riley. No, because that's what's popping. Well, you got to make music like this or blah, 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 you know. So fortunately... You know, for a portion of my career, I've always had something, especially in the beginning, I worked little odd jobs and I was always my most creative because I never cared about music paying a bill. I would just work, you know, Paul knows when we were kids, I'd work at Stern's and vacuum and stuff and clean up in the morning and stuff like that because I could just go home and work with a freedom of not caring who heard it or it needing to make a dollar. You know, I think the most critical time was when I was signed to Def Jam because everything became about money. Creativity was secondary and everything was, oh, you got to make a hit. And that never made sense to me. That was never what music was to me. Music is just expression in in the purest form. Anybody can make music. Anybody. That's why I've created a new YouTube channel where I'm trying to show just music enthusiasts in general that love music but never even attempted to try to make it because they feel intimidated by all of this stuff. You know, I want to show them that, no, you can make music. Like, just like the app, G, that you just showed me. That is perfect. You know, I'm going to feature that on my channel. Like, now I'm getting started on this channel because that's something you can use AI and your own musical taste, and you can create music from jump. So I think that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, Creativity is all that matters, and money is second. And money's not real anyway, as we can all see now. He's Gangster. Damn. He's, he's, he's like Mario Cuomo. <laughs> 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 the people listen. 
uh, Don Newkirk, uh, Prince Paul, aka the Lord Brothers, uh, just released this incredible project by Every Means Necessary Volume One. Uh, obviously, with that ending of that last track on the album, there's going to be a volume two. That's, that's what we're anticipating, you know. If there isn't, I'm going to be very upset. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Paul and Don, thank you so much for being on the library to Monica and all hip hop com. I did. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.